Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another uh, YouTube video and Podbean podcast of Gaudium at Spes 22. Uh, and you can get the Podbean podcast on Spotify, Apple and Amazon Music. Uh, today I have as my guest and once again, as I always am, I'm, I'm excited to have him. It's a repeat guest. And for those of you who are uh, faithful viewers of my various interviews, know uh, Dr. Matthew Levering, who is my guest today. I think I've had him on the show a couple of times, two or three times. And uh, he is professor of theology at uh, Mundelein Seminary in, well, in near Chicago. But the, the official town is Mundelein, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's the rector there now, by the way? Oh, Father John Karchi. Excellent. Um, he's a biblical scholar. Oh, very good. Very, very good. Yeah. I, ever since I've kind of lost touch of who's there, who's not there ever since uh, Bob Barron went off to become a bishop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and, uh, and there you go. So that's good to know. It's good to know. Anyway, uh, Dr. Levering has written a book on uh, the role of moral conscience in Catholic moral theology, and it's called Abuses of Conscience. What's the subtitle? I don't have the book actually here with me. Uh, it's called, it's called uh, The Abuse of Conscience, A Century of Catholic Moral Theology. There we go. And I it's I, I read it cover to cover and it's it's heavily highlighted and underlined. I'm sorry, I don't have it here with me. Uh, it's at my other place. And uh, I highly recommend all of my viewers to look it up and read it. If you are interested, truly interested in the role of of conscience in in the history of Catholic moral theology. And it's an acutely important topic uh, lately. And the reason why it's acutely important lately uh, Cardinal McElroy of San Diego has written a, a couple of essays uh, in America magazine and also granted an interview, a radio interview, not radio, a podcast interview uh, with America magazine outlining his uh, approach, pastoral approach to the question of uh, Eucharistic discipline, specifically for allowing uh, sort of what you can only call, for want of a better word, open table fellowship, Eucharistic table fellowship uh, for divorced and remarried Catholics, for people of same sex attraction. I mean, he uses the LGBTQ acronym um, and, and so on. Uh, so in, in, he, and he really does focus on the sexual sins. Uh, he doesn't have a whole lot to say about open table fellowship for other classes of sinners. I would imagine that he would not want, as I've said in another interview, you know, a raging anti-Semite or racist or neo-Nazi uh, to be allowed into Eucharistic communion. But who knows? But whatever, whatever the broader uh, position might be, he very clearly uh, believes uh, that that we have erred in the history of Catholic theology by making the moral object of all sexual actions grave matter. And therefore, every deliberately chosen sexual sin is a grave sin, which bars one from Eucharistic communion. And so his argument is we need to reduce that uh, grave matter to a parvity of matter or, uh, you know, a merely venial sins, in other words, for whole classes of what we would normally have thought of as, as grave sinners in, in the sexual domain. And since they are to be reduced now to venial status, they should be allowed into Eucharistic discipline. In his latest thing in, in America magazine, and I'll turn it over to Matt in a second, here is what Cardinal Mac he, he lays out his reasons why 
he believes that we should allow these, uh, you know, sexual sinners uh, into Eucharistic communion. And the second of the reasons is the role of conscience. And here's what he says. The second is the role of conscience in Catholic thought. For every member of the church, it is conscience we have, which we have to which we have the ultimate responsibility and by which we will be judged. For that reason, while Catholic teaching has an essential role in moral decision making, it is conscience that has the privileged place. As Pope Francis has stated, the church's role is to form consciences, not replace them. Categorical exclusion exclusions of the divorced and remarried and LGBT persons from the Eucharist do not give due respect to the inner conversations of conscience that people have with their God in discerning moral choice in complex circumstances, end quote. So that's what Cardinal McElroy has to say about you know, so why, why we should allow into Eucharistic communion is because we need to allow essentially individuals in, in these irregular sexual situations and lifestyles. We need to allow these individuals to essentially decide for themselves in the depth of their moral conscience, whether or not what they're doing is moral or not, that the church needs to stop in a sense, finger wagging at them and, and, and holding over them, the church's traditional teaching. So, um, you, you can gain an entry point, Matt, into any one of those comments or commented on general. But now I'll turn it over to you uh, to to to, uh, get, to get your response to that. Yeah, these these things are really common. Um, you know, uh, Cardinal McElroy's position has been quite common um, since the early 1970s. You can find very similar things, um, you know, written uh, at least by 1970, um, probably before. And so this is um, not unusual. And, and so C- Cardinal McElroy's position also is very consonant with um, the position of a number of European moral theologians, um, certainly any moral theologians at Boston College, but it, it's quite common in Europe. Um, and Vincent Paglia, Archbishop Paglia, at, um, you know, who is uh, very, of course, obviously has such a prominent position um, you know, his position would be perfectly consonant with Cardinal McElroy's. So, so I, I wouldn't want to present um, Cardinal McElroy as um, representing some kind of minority here or um, some position that is, has sort of not been around at some sort of novum. You know, um, Cardinal McElroy's position has been dominant in academic circles since the early 70s, and it... Um, you know, it didn't get any traction, of course, under Popes uh, John Paul II or uh, Benedict, and of course under Pope Paul VI either. But it's it's a very common position, and essentially it goes back. Um, there's there's um, uh, reasons for it in, in two two ways. Um, one of the um, sources of the position is what I call the new conscience-centered morality that emerges af- immediately after the Council. But it, it also um, has its source in the sexual revolution, which sort of downplays the importance of the family in terms of the husband and wife and their role in uh, raising children and the right. significance of children. So the sexual revolution, the whole issue, um, like, do you really need to have to raise children? Um, it has to do with the second marriage, really. And, and just the whole issue of husband and wife, um, father and mother, you know, do they need to be present or could you just have two fathers? Is Elton John and his partner, are they, you know, with their two boys, um, so-called, um, you know, because it's not 
it, obviously the boys don't come from both of them, but um, you, you right. see one point. Right. So, so yeah, that's yeah. the issue. You have those two. You have two issues here. So the first is like the sexual revolution and the whole family. You know, maybe let's just have two moms and, and it'll all work out. And that has to do with second marriage. But then the second issue is kind of more fundamental in my view. And that has to do with this emergence of a, of a new conscience center morality um, immediately after the council. And in my book, The Abuse of Conscience, that's what I that's what I talk about. Is like, how did we get um, this new conscience center, conscience center morality? How did this uh, come about? Yeah. And so briefly, what what is the difference between the new conscience centered morality that you that, you know, I'm I'm old enough to remember when, when this happened um, among mm-hmm. the proportionalists, you know, you Jim Keenan, Charles Kernan, Kern, uh, Keenan came a little later than the early 70s. But you get my point. Uh, and, and and the proportionalists also there was floating around the sort of fundamental option moral theory that individual choices don't really matter so much. What really matters is your fundamental orientation for or, in a sense, against God, if you want to put it that way. And that it's in essence, that view would be that it's really, really hard to commit a mortal sin of any kind uh, because your fundamental option is going to remain. So we'll get back to those. Uh, So uh, roughly speaking, then, I mean, obviously, the church has always said, I mean, going all the way back to Aquinas, that uh, one must in, in in making moral judgments, one must follow the last best judgment of your conscience when you are morally choosing. Uh, and so there has been a kind of a kind of primacy of conscience in, in Catholic moral thinking. So what then becomes different in the new conscience conscious conscience centered morality? Well, as, as you as you would know, of course, uh, Thomas Aquinas um gives one question to conscience and it's it's very short yeah he, um, it is he doesn't really treat conscience in in that much detail because he he treats the the structure in which conscience belongs and conscience does have a role an important role within that whole uh structure of moral um uh, assessment and and action but he only treats it in one question but one so, place it's absolutely it's just one place <laughs> Yeah, in the summa at least, and so and so then, um, what in answer to your question, uh, you have the the moral manuals, and of course the Redemptorists and the Jesuits were the main um, authors of the moral manuals, but some were written by by um, in the diocesan or by um, Dominicans, and so in the moral manuals, you really do have an emphasis on law and conscience, and so if you open a moral manual, you'll you'll begin by um, usually they'll mention beatitude, the goal of action, and they'll give you a, a short account of the structure of human action. But then they'll have a tremendously long section on law, which is eternal law, natural law. Um, and it's a, often a very beautiful section, by the way. <laughs> and, yeah. and then they will have an extremely long section on conscience. Because conscience, what conscience does is in the, in the um, human action, Conscience um, takes the norms um, given by law, and these norms are, um, you know, just you know, obviously like the Decalogue or whatever. And conscience takes these norms and then applies them in particular cases. And so the key thing then in, you know, post-Tridentine moral theology, post-Council of Trent, you know, is to sort of figure out, you know, what um, sort of where are the flexible points in law. 
you know, we have these laws. Nobody, nobody was challenging the um, absolute absoluteness of law, but but the question would be, you know, given this law, you know, in a particular circumstance, um, you know, are there situations? How how can we? Are they flexible? Um, is it flexible so that we can do this that? And so there would be these cases of conscience. There was a real focus on cases of conscience, and that's what probabilism was. And so you would have equiprobabilism, and you would have um, probabiliorism, and then all sorts of things like this. And then you would also have, um, of course, you would have rigorism and laxism and so on. And so everything was about these cases of conscience. But everybody agreed, though, in this period, everybody agreed that law was um, definitive and that there really right. was natural law, eternal law, and so on. But there was this 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 uh, morality was very conscience centered. It wasn't like the morality that you get in the church fathers or in the um, Thomas Aquinas when you're reading their texts. It was um, extremely conscience centered. That doesn't mean the conscience doesn't have an important place in the fathers. It, it does. But anyway, the point is, um, it really wasn't the fullness of biblical morality either, because um, conscience is not the center of biblical morality, although it has a significant place. But so. Anyway, what happens then is, um, you know, Karl Rahner and others after the council, and I can I'll get, I can get into reasons why this happened, but um, they were essentially um, there was all sorts of reasons. I, I, we can talk about the reasons why it happened, but but Karl Rahner is a key figure because he was a genius, and he began to develop um, develop. He began to push toward a new version of this conscience and morality. So he was moving away from the moral manuals. But he was moving towards something new, and he sort of he begins gradually. He doesn't. He doesn't. I don't think he really knows what he's looking for, but he begins gradually using the Jesuit understanding of discernment, and so discernment becomes the key. And so moral. He sort of begins to relativize moral norms, but not in a not in a fundamental way yet. So in his early writings, Carl. These are in the nineteen forties and fifties. Rahner is still affirming the absoluteness of moral norms, um, including the norm of um, that became um, the norm against contraception and so on. But right. so um, this Rahner and others are beginning to move, though, and beginning to shift. And this is already happening in the 50s. But uh, anyway, so there, what, the, what emerges is a new version of conscience and morality. And so by, by 1965, the whole thing is in place. And this new version of conscience and morality, though, um, gets rid of law. So law no longer has any sort of fundamental place. And there, there isn't really an understanding of natural law anymore because the understanding of human nature changes. And so um, human nature essentially becomes spirit, you know, not, not body, soul. And so body no longer has teleology um, or spirit orientation. So you really no longer have bodily teleology or body. The body is just sort of right. an instrument that doesn't really have any meaning anymore. And so um, human nature becomes spirit, according to Rahner and many others after the council. But but the bottom line is that what you get is um, is that they still they still gesture toward having some moral law. Those you remember after the council, they sort of get rid of any. Um, what essentially this is whole debate over intrinsically um, evil acts, right? Right. But, um, essentially, they get rid of moral norms, and um, but they keep some moral norms around just for it in general, um, not not yeah. not absolute moral norms, but moral norms in general. 
So they keep those, but really what they've done is tremendously relativize um, law, but they've kept conscience and conscience becomes connected with the fundamental option, which you mentioned, sort of the core, conscience is sort of the core of your, of your moral being. And so you have some, you have some norms floating around that you get from culture or from, you know, um, your, your spiritual experience or from tradition. And so these norms are important, but you sort of make discernments and you, um, you know, conscious really just dominating. So, so that's the new conscious and morality right there. Well, that's very, very interesting, and especially yeah, the relationship between the conscience-centered morality and and the fundamental option. Uh, and I remember all of that, you know, especially when I was a young seminarian being presented. Mm. I remember, I remember Charlie Curran, you know, denying that there could be any such things as intrinsically evil actions. Uh, I remember him writing that there that there can be virtually intrinsically evil actions uh, in the sense that it's hard to imagine any circumstances that would make this or that action allowable. Uh, uh, but still, nevertheless, he says, you know, we, we have to stop talking in this language of intrinsic evil, which which is interesting to me, too, because there was a conference last year in Rome at the Gregorian on Amoris Laetitia. And there was a Jesuit who spoke there. I can't remember his name, who said that John Paul II had tied moral theology into knots by inventing, he said this, by inventing the category of intrinsically evil actions, and that we are still trying to untie those knots. And Amoris Laetitia sort of is, is a first step in the in the progress of untying the knots that JP2 had tied. So I remember when I read that, and I actually wrote about it somewhere, thinking, aha, all right, this is sort of once again exactly what you're talking about, sort of coming to the surface, coming to the fore. I also want to circle back to something you said at the beginning, which is, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I have focused of late in my writing and some podcasts on Cardinal McElroy is not because I, I consider him to be singularly dangerous or weird or strange or idiosyncratic, but precisely because he isn't idiosyncratic, precisely because he's simply on the tip of a very large iceberg. Uh, he's just one of the few prelates who's had the, the honesty to come out and say, here's what I think. Okay, rather than couching it in all kinds of word salad verbiage about dialogue and inclusions, he just comes around and says, "Look, here's what I think." So, in that sense, we owe him, in some sense, a credit for for being openly honest. So, okay, so what would you 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 alluded to the fact, and we'll come back to conscience in a second. You alluded to the fact that the uh, the manualists began to really focus on conscience law and the relation between conscience and law in a way, obviously, that Aquinas does not. You're correct. I mean, I remember when I read the Summa in, in seminary thinking, well, geez, uh, where's all this talk of conscience in Aquinas that I'm always hearing about? You know, it's just not there. It's in one place. He, he references it in a few other places, but not in the Summa. But you're right. It does not frame. It does not frame his approach to to moral decision making. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I'm interested in something else you said, which is that it, this kind of super emphasis on law and conscience is not representative of the scriptural or patristic approach to moral theology. Um, perhaps you could elaborate on that just a bit. Well, so the, the first part of my book, um, you know, it, I exactly. address the biblical. I, I address the biblical um, because what was happening was in the in the first half of the 20th century, there were this amazing effort to reform moral theology. 
So um, there was a number of uh, people from all sorts of um, theological schools that realized that Catholic moral theology um, really needed no, no longer to be this sort of probabilist um, debate uh, between law and, con and conscience. Catholic moral theology needed to be more firmly grounded in charity, in the, in the virtues, in prudence, and so on. And so, so the kind of stuff that you'll find in Survey Pincare, you'll also find it very much in Reginald Garigou Lagrange. They, they were saying the same thing, but then many others were also saying this, including a number of Jesuit reformers, people like um, Emil Mersch or- Mersch. Um, yeah, for, certainly he wrote beautifully on this topic. But so um, the first thing I do in my book though is I, I kind of um, develop uh, consciousness place in scripture does so that we can see how people like Eve Congar, but but also exegetes. Um, some, so I do some German and some British and, and so on. How, how these biblical scholars were showing that consciousness simply was not the center. It had a place, but it wasn't the center of biblical, um, you know, of New Testament understanding of um, moral theology. And so so that's what I do there. Um, but, the, but the point of it all is just that, look, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, they were quite rightly um, seeking a more biblical patristic and, and more Thomistic um, understanding of moral theology. They were they were reforming um, moral theology. And, and this is really what is um, Vatican II was all about when Vatican II says, look, let's have a more biblical um, moral theology. They were just, this was a reform movement, which was a wonderful reform movement. And so they were seeking to develop a morality that wasn't so conscience-centered, but instead they got a new version of conscience-centered morality, but this time essentially without law. And of course, that's a, that's devastating because the truth is that there is eternal law. There are moral norms and, you know, you can't kill grandma, not even in any circumstances can you um, deliberately yeah. kill your grandma. You know, there really <laughs> are these, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, or what your intention is. This is this is Dostoevsky. You know, this is like crime and punishment. This is sort yeah. of um yeah. This is uh like there's nothing there's nothing new about this point. And so you can't get rid of law the way that they did and relativize it in in, in the sense of intention and circumstances. But but it's interesting what they tried to, after World War II, and I, I after writing the book, I realized that a key figure here um involved the Freudian psychologists. And they weren't Freudian full sense, but they were in that in that tradition. A key figure would be someone like Eric Fromm. And he's he's a brilliant um, German who then escaped the Nazis. And he he writes on authenticity. And so his basic argument, he had a number of extremely influential books, but and then others like him also. But the basic argument was thought like this is they said they said, look, um, you you're going to have to have a, a, a morality center in conscience because that's the only way you can have an, an authentic uh, morality. But they said the reason why you got the Nazis was because all these Christians had been um, obeying um, their leaders and had not thought for themselves, had not become mature, and had you know were unable to think for themselves morally. And so yeah. the Nazis then um, were just another leaders that people obeyed. And so the idea was, if we could become more authentic, and then, um, you know, this would um, enable us no longer to um, fall into something like Nazism, as it were. Um, this was from the German context. And so by authentic, they meant in a Heideggerian sense, they, they essentially meant right. um, 
and I talk about this in the book, I talk about Heidegger. Heidegger is a key figure here. But um, anyway, these psychologists were also writing about this. That's my point. And, and so that was an impetus um, to Jesuits like Rahner, Rahner again being so important, moving toward this conscious and morality, but now without law, because once you get rid of law, then you can focus on this so-called personal authenticity rooted in discernment. And it's all about personal responsibility, personal authenticity, and the inner core, the inner core, which is the fundamental option. And conscience really is the fundamental option in the sense that um, uh, conscience becomes sort of like everything. It becomes your deepest, uh, darkest uh, arena, you know, within the, within the self, you know, the, your core of authenticity. Yeah, it often strikes me along those lines that the view of conscience being expressed here is, is rather oracular, right? <laughs> you know, that your conscience is like the Oracle of Delphi communicating to you in rather direct ways some sort of mysterious communication from the moral domain from god from the moral domain or from wherever yeah. uh and that it's a sort of generator of moral norms uh, all all its own uh which of course opens up the possibility of morality becoming this utterly idiosyncratic thing you know tailored to yeah. each and every individual and their complex circumstances and uh and so on. But, you know, what's also interesting, Matt, is that, you know, uh, you know, sort of Delubach hints at this, that that one of the one of the things that's wrong with that analysis about the relationship between Nazism and, and the sort of Christians that went along with it is, is that more than the fact that these people had been somewhat infantilized by a rather forensic or legalistic approach uh, to morality through various things that had been given to them from on high by church authority or whatever the reasoning was, but rather than that being the source of their quick acquiescence to, to Nazism, uh, it probably had uh, more to do with the fact that moral norms had essentially been evacuated of any inner teleology, any inner meaning, which, which then opened up a sort of nihilistic landscape into which the Nazis could pour whatever the heck they wanted to pour. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you know, De Lubach's point was that what, what we have here is, is sort of modernity coming to full fruition in its sort of anomic meaninglessness. Uh, and, 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 I, and, I tend to, and I tend to agree with that. I mean, it, to me, it seems silly to say that if we can just get rid of these sort of rather extrinsic moral norms, we, we will then make a less pliant population of people. We will make a more mature population of people since they won't be trying to conform themselves to some sort of heteronymous law that comes to them from outside. Uh, I agree with that. And of course, it's completely amazing that you would respond to Nazism by getting rid of moral norms. My you know, point, exactly. The, the Nazis... <laughs> The Nazis themselves got rid of moral norms, and and they showed exactly what that means yeah. in terms of you know the Nazi. What they did was so incredibly against the fundamental moral norms of our faith that they, if anybody proves the point about intrinsically moral evil or fundamental moral norms, that um, you no know, circumstance or intention can ever make it right. The yeah, Nazis and of course proved that. Yeah, and of course, you know, what was the source and inspiration of the confessional churches 
you know, in in Germany who stood up, rose up against against the Nazis, the resistance and other places as well that had explicitly Christian motivations. Uh, mm-hmm. All of that is rooted in a sort of fundamental awareness that the Nazis were violating some extremely important moral norms <laughs> that, that we just can't abide by uh, and stand idly by and, and let happen. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 that is, though, I think I think you're absolutely correct. I think one of the things people often forget is that by the time you get into the 60s and early 70s uh, and a lot of these moral theories are really coming into their own you're dealing with people whose formative years were formed by that war uh and and the immediate aftermath of that war and uh, americans i think sometimes have a hard time understanding uh, the extent to which that war was devastating to the european consciousness uh and moral conscience and uh, it it was it was it was that's 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 really important to point out but but there was this oddity (laughs) In that, in that Heidegger's thought, I, I treat this in the fourth in the fourth chapter of my book. Um, yeah, you do. But so Heidegger's thought, um, you know, with his emphasis on authenticity and his kind of um, relativization of mor- moral norms, he, he's a key figure here. And Heidegger, though, of course, became a Nazi and really was a fully right. believing Nazi. He, he, there was no doubt about it or any ifs. You can, there's just not, no doubt about it. So he was a full Nazi. But so after the war, however, you know, his vision of authenticity uh, really uh, explodes. In other words, um, you know, the existentialism that he promoted uh, wasn't all that popular. It was popular, but not all that popular. But after the after World War II, it was tremendously popular. And so there is kind of a mystery here. Um, you know, so I, it's in in a way, it's a, it's a mystery of darkness because people coming out of the war, you have to. There's a tremendous guilt. I, I think the tremendous guilt that people felt, um, you know, for their complicity in these horrific actions. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, really, we got to deal with that. It's just, you know, the whole the whole Heideggerian way sort of gets you out of the guilt, you know, by just focusing on. You know your your moral moral authenticity that supposedly you get when you um yeah. you sort of develop your conscience the way that he understands conscience, but so I think yeah. I think this sense of deep guilt is um important to to keep in mind that people are looking to get out <laughs> get out from under get out from under guilt. Yes, well that's all you know. This is all I think fantastic <laughs> uh, backstory. Uh, to the history of, of, of things. One of the things, one of the reasons, by the way, and this is completely tangential, well, not completely, but somewhat tangential. One of the reasons I think why a lot of younger people today, especially, have a hard time appreciating what it was that the Second Vatican Council accomplished is precisely mm-hmm. a, a, a deep ignorance of the backdrop to the council, the entire history of both Catholic uh, theology and philosophy, but also the entire history of European intellectual life in the sort of century that preceded the Second Vatican Council, that you cannot understand this council unless you see it, view it as a kind of uh, response to everything that had come before for like for like 100 mm-hmm. years. 
you know. Uh, but anyway, that, that that like I said, that's that's tangential. But I do think it's a problem that you know, I often get people saying, well, what's the big deal about Vatican II? I read the documents. It seems like a big yickety yackety about things I don't care about, you know, that only nerds and eggheads care about. Well, OK, fine. Uh, I'm sure a lot of average Catholics, you know, didn't understand what Nicaea meant by homoousios either. Uh, it, that's not the point. But anyway, I'm going to shift gears uh, a bit. Go ahead. That's right. Nostra, things like Nostra Aetate really matter, <laughs> you know? Oh, absolutely. Like when, yeah, they really matter. And and the council really matters. So so I'm, I'm just confirming what you're saying there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I wish more people had that attitude. But anyway, I, I want to shift. Well, before I shift gears completely, I want to then I want to talk about one figure that is often raised, uh, especially by more liberal Catholics, if you want to call them that Ronarian type Catholics, proportionist Catholics, uh, is the figure of Cardinal Newman, which is strange because Newman was certainly not a, a moral proportionalist. But what they allude to is, is Newman's writings on the role of, of moral conscience. Uh, so maybe you could elaborate a little bit on, on what, what exactly was it that Cardinal Newman said about the role of conscience in moral adjudication? Oh, that's that's right. And, and and one interesting thing is that a number of the um, strongest opponents of Nazism, including Sophie Scholl, um, right there in the right there at the time, right there in the um, who were martyred, you know, um, killed. Yeah. You know, was that the White Rose? Yeah. They, they were reading Newman. <laughs> they, these people, um, Newman was extremely important for these people. Now, the reason, of course, is that for Newman, um, God, the lawgiver, you know, the eternal law, uh, God, the lawgiver, you know, is just central. And Newman hears the voice of, of divine law. You know, it, it's Newman, of course, very biblical thinker. Remember, he's influenced by evangelical, which at that time meant us, um, you know, um, Anglicans who were reformed, essentially. Right. You need to think yeah. about. But so um, Newman's a very biblical thinker. Um, and so he's thinking in terms of um, the divine lawgiver, you know, giving the command, you know, and he hears he hears the presence of the implacable divine lawgiver, you know, in his conscience. You know, that's the voice of conscience. The voice of conscience is the voice of God, the lawgiver. And so it's not it's not um, it's not the discernment of, um, you know, kind of discerning like how can we get out, how can we get out from under this law, or how can we um, in our particular circumstances and given our intention ignore the law. No conscience for Newman really is, and he has his own version of conscience that goes back in the British tradition. You know, it's not really a um, European understanding of conscience, but but it's the same basic idea, which is, but his idea though is just conscience is, is like like what, what Aquinas would call um, synderesis or synderesis. Right, right. Um, you know, just simply the divine lawgiver giving the law. And so that's what that's what Newman means when he talks about obeying conscience. It's like, hey, you got to obey the divine lawgiver, you know, giving the divine command. You know, so he doesn't mean this kind of moral discernment um, thing, you know, that that is the what I call the new conscience center morality that, that we see um, yeah. emerging almost immediately after the council. Well, that's that's absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm glad, you know, that uh, you, you uh, uh, point that out about Newman and, and you know, the conscience as a recognition of, of the divine law. Uh, because it just has always struck me as strange and bizarre. If, if, if you, nobody can possibly read even five pages of Cardinal Newman and come away with the impression that he's a sort of proto-modern, uh, proto-liberal, you know, in, in his thinking on moral matters, that he is sort of, 
that he's sort of presaging the rise of the therapeutic self and all of its affectations and needs that we must attend to, you know, in adjudicating these complex situations. No, I, I always love. So let's let's segue a bit back to, to the modern situation. Uh, I often think and you see it here in, in uh, Cardinal McElroy's statement, he goes that we need we need to let people decide with regard to you know their own discerning. Uh, moral choice in their complex circumstances. That's that always strikes me when they say complex circumstances as 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 a strange kind of code for uh, the fact that concreteness concreteness is at odds with the moral law. Uh, and 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 I and I there's a sort of there's really a I can't put my finger on. Maybe you can help me here. There's just a strange and bizarre binary that they set up here between concreteness and what they consider to be the abstractions of law. Well, well, it's re it's really quite similar, actually, to good old fashioned laxism, which was when you had cases of conscience, and um, you know, so you'd have this um, the two the French. The French nobility. I'm just giving an example of, the, of good old-fashioned laxism, you know, where you would have these cases of conscience, law versus conscience, and so the law would be you cannot commit adultery, but uh, the circumstance would be that, um, you know, the two, the man and the woman, they were part of the nobility, and they'd been. It was an arranged marriage. There was never any love, but they'd always um, each love different people, and so of course, why not have a mistress, or why not um, have commit adultery? And so, of course, adultery is wrong. That's the that's the law. But then, for for the for laxism, you know, yeah, you know, in this case, you could have a mistress because you always love the mistress and something something. Now, I'm just giving an example that that may not be a real example. It may not be real, but it's the it's the fundamental yeah. same idea. So, yeah. what we're dealing with here is is a morality of cases of conscience, really, that has got law versus conscience. It's it's a new form of probabilism, but. But it's nowhere near as good as the old probabilism. Of course, laxism was condemned by the church, but yeah, um, yeah. The, the the bottom line is that this is no way to to um, think about moral matters. Um, there needs to be a much a richer way, um, and that way that way really was sketched by the reformers prior to the council. You know, so these reformers were thinking of a more biblical, Thomistic, um, you know, patristic uh, right, way, and, right? And, but so and somehow we ended up in this, which is just um, essentially there are no real moral norms, but there's just the fact that two two women love each other and they have um, they um, they have one of them has adopted the other one's ch children or this or that, you know, thing. And so they they're a family. And so this that next thing, you know, these are the these are the circumstances. And yeah. it is. Um, it is understandable that these are very complex circumstances, but circumstances have always been complex. The thing yeah. is, there, there are there are norms, though. <laughs> you know, there are moral norms. There there are yeah. you know, natural law. Well, it often gets ignored too. It seems to me, and thank you for that because I I think that's brilliant. I, I think that's uh, to 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 tie that back in with the tradition of moral laxity. I think is is. That's something I didn't. That's something I had not thought of. And I think that's absolutely correct, actually, when you think about it. Uh, now, I often think one of the things that gets overlooked is when they say complex circumstances, in some ways, kind of what they mean is messy circumstances, so circumstances that get uh, 
really sort of sticky and complicated and messy and uh, hard to pin down. And, and one of the things that gets ignored, it seems to me, is and I know this from having counseled many, many students over the years whose lives were in crisis and turmoil and they were in complex situations and circumstances, is that they got to that place precisely because of the sins in their lives. You, you, you often get into these messy, complex circumstances because you've made a series of really bad choices in your life uh, that many of which are sinful. Uh, and, and so the answer to that, it would seem to me, is not to double down on the messiness and to say, let's 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 just bless it and baptize it and say, OK, you're in a horrible situation, so you decide for yourself now. No, the answer is to back engineer your complex situation to its roots. What caused this? And maybe there are some sins we can identify that if you eliminated from your life, you wouldn't be in a constant state of crisis. I think that's right. And now now, now part of this is going to be um, reorienting people who are in these type of situations, but also reorienting pastors. Just to yeah. remember that, um, you know, that it is life in Christ. And so um, sharing in Christ's uh, charity and and then also the just in the infusion of justice and the virtues, you know, prudence, justice, courage, temperance, but also but temperance, <laughs> temperance. Yeah, temperance is big. You know, so, yeah, so these these neglected virtues um, are really important. And 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 so there is a way um there is a way out when we begin to think about, you know, how can we be merciful in Christ to people who are um, in complex circumstances? Yeah. Well, well, the first thing is to, to proclaim Christ's mercy, but also then to invite people into a real relationship with Christ. Um, that relationship with Christ involves the Holy Spirit, the, the real grace of the Holy Spirit, um, and so on. And so this, this really is a call into the life of virtue, which is which is a life of transformation and sanctification, but it's also grounded in church and sacraments, which are filled with mercy and, and in Christ's um, own cross and love for us. So again, I think this this bigger context, but but yeah, the the irony is that when you get a get rid of moral norms, when you get rid of them, and and you think that's going to solve the problem. It's just it's just amazing. And so it makes it worse. So the, it makes it worse. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's like the Me Too movement. You know, the sexual revolution happens in the 60s and everybody um is abusing women and doing terrible things. And the women themselves are are allowing are involved in all sorts of horrible things. And the men are involved in terrible things. And somehow people think that the answer is to get rid of moral norms. It's just it beats everything. Yeah, which uh I want I want to come back to this. Uh, in, in relation to to Cardinal McElroy's uh, statements to the effect that the approach that he's offering is more loving and more merciful uh, than what he calls the sort of cold Gnostic logic, you know, of or maybe that's Supich who called it the cold Gnostic logic. It's Kupelroy, Cardinal's Kupelroy at this point in my mind. <laughs> they were the, and, they, and, and of course, many European um, and Europeans as well. Around. I'm but, just thinking mainly in yeah. terms of my listeners and stuff in this American context. Before I do, there's another uh, since you are so well versed in the history of, the, of things, one of the central claims 
that Cardinal McElroy makes is also a, a claim I've heard others make. So he didn't invent this once again, but he's putting it out there. And it's this idea <clears throat> that that it wasn't until the 17th century that the church decided that all sexual sins, uh, that the moral object of all sexual sins was grave matter. Um, I, I find that to be an unbelievably inaccurate assessment of of the situation. But maybe I'm wrong about that. What, what would you say to that claim that the church didn't adjudicate sexual sins as grave matter until the 17th century? Well, you know, the, the type of the type of thing where you, you have the rise of probabilism and and you have the um, after casuistry. The yeah, after the Council of Trent, you have the um, development of, of moral casuistry and the whole the whole law of conscience um, uh, morality understood in terms of law versus conscience. And so, so look, the whole the whole notion of like grave matter, you know, Aquinas has an, an equivalent uh, in a certain sense, but but this type of um, moral discourse, um, you know. I mean, the whole they they developed sort of moral categories and moral discourse um, that you might, in some way, you might could claim that this moral discourse develops in the 17th century. But look, not in reality. I mean, the re, the the core elements, you know, of of law and the structure of human acts and and um, good and evil acts, you know, the core elements are are there in the church fathers and and fully present in in scripture. So the the whole thing is is it's nonsense, but. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the thing is that the family, of course, the family is, is so important. So um, remember, sexual acts were never thought of in terms of um, does the consent of two persons or or the, um, you know, the adult, um, the, the single individual, you know, sexual acts are always thought of in terms of um, the family, the community, the family, the community. And Wendell Berry is good on this um, before he sort of shifted you yeah. know, early, early Wendell Berry. But so sexual acts have to do with um, family, community, and just um, you know the basis of the way that we relate to each other. And children are really um, crucial Huge. here because they're yeah. the vulnerable. They're they're the weak yeah. and vulnerable. And so it is true to me that um, it's clear to me that that um, like in a childless society, <laughs> of course you're going to have difficulty holding on to this. But but we just need to look around, like look and look and see how are children thriving? How do how do we help them thrive? And then you can move from there to figuring out a good sexual morality. Yeah, but, yeah. Go um, ahead. That, that would be one way. That would be one sort of common sense way, you know. But anyway, yeah. That obviously what Cardinal McElroy is alluding to here is that beginning in the 17th century, as you've just pointed out, you see the rise of a kind of different form of moral discourse that's going to place uh, more emphasis on law and conscience and their relationship and so forth. And uh, a certain greater precision, if you will, in defining mm -hmm. things, but to thereby imply that before that time, an Aquinas and Augustine or the church fathers would have thought uh, that most sexual sins were kind of venial <laughs> or no big deal, or that you know, all, all of a sudden, you know, Aquinas can be used to justify homosexual sex or uh, yeah. Divor yeah. divorce and uh, divorce and remarriage, sex in the context of divorce and remarriage. The idea that Aquinas and other pre-Tridentine thinkers did not view these sexual sins as very serious sins is ludicrous historically. Well, it's completely ludicrous, but and then, um, but again, it all it does need to be um, viewed within the whole context of 
context of Christian morality. Um, yeah. And so that context, of course, was much richer than than what what Cardinal McElroy has in view. And so I, I wrote I wrote a book trying to address these type of problems. I tried to address them in a book that I called. Um, a, this is a terrible title. I know it's called Aquinas's Eschatological Ethics and the Virtue of Temperance, and it came out from University of Notre Dame Press in 2019. But but that book, um, it's really about temperance. But what Aquinas does is he puts temperance into a, a tremendously rich context, and so there um, temperance has a wide range and a wide um, application. And he sort of shows how how the grace of the Holy Spirit, which is what I call that's what that's what eschatological ethics is. It's ethics for people um, who who in Christ have received the Spirit, you know, because Christ yeah. has poured out the Spirit. That's the inaugurated kingdom, you know. And so um, anyway, the, the yeah. point of the book was, was to, the point of the book was temperance is is um, something we need to think about, and we need to think about these issues. Um, you know, not uh, certainly in terms of natural law, um, but certainly in terms of virtue also, and and virtue, um, virtue and law are completely connected. You know, so there really that's, is. Uh, that's yeah. a book of yours I have not read, uh, and now you, I'm going to have to go buy it and read it because it sounds <laughs> it sounds really fantastic. By the way, and this is a complete side note. I I envy your discipline in writing books, Matt. Uh, it's just incredible. Uh, the number of books that 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 you have put out, and and not just books, but good books. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to say, I'm going to plug your books to my viewers and listeners. Buy Matt Levering's books. I mean, they're really good. And uh, I, I I struggle to crank out a five thousand word blog post or a two thousand word Catholic World Report. You know, I've written three books, but uh, you know, how many have you written? Eighty seven. It's it's crazy. You know, you know, you know the difference is that my, my books are boring. I I really am a synthesizer. I I love to read what other people write and to reflect upon it. And I and I love the richness of our Catholic faith and our the tradition yeah. and. So, but I really am just a synthesizer. So my books are are terribly boring, and and uh, I'm very grateful no, for. I I would I would disagree that they're boring, uh, but there's certainly a place for synthesizers, especially in today's church. Uh, now I, I want to move on to something I alluded to before. Let's see what time is it. Oh, we got some time. Uh, uh, Cardinal McElroy, and and a, certainly this is a central theme of many of the. You know the, the current people in the church, like you pointed out in Europe, Archbishop Paglia, people like this. There's this constant pitting of mercy against doctrine, rules, and and moral norms. Uh, and 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 what Cardinal McElroy sort of explicitly says in in these couple of essays he's written is that what he's advocating for is simply a more merciful and a more loving. Uh, inclusive embrace of, of people in the LGBTQ community and so on. Um, and he just sort of throws that out there in my mind in a sort of question begging sort of way. And it's question begging because the issue of what counts as mercy and love in these situations is precisely what is, what is up for debate. You can't just presume that just because you're, in a sense, baptizing uh, the lifestyles of certain people, that that is by definition more merciful because it leaves open the question of whether those lifestyles are healthy, morally, spiritually, psychologically, and in, in every other way. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it certainly wouldn't be healthy and, and, or therefore merciful and loving for me to give an alcoholic a six pack. 
okay, uh, on the grounds that look how merciful and loving I'm being, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to give you some booze. Uh, so, so that's the, is this not throwing in some ways, since we live in a pornified, hypersexualized culture uh, with a kind of LGBTQ steamroller just rolling through our culture and our church, in our institutions, uh, is 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 this not what Cardinal McRoy's approach, not merciful at all, but throwing gasoline on a fire? Well, I think I think that um, what you're saying, the fundamental thing you're saying is is correct. But and but I would want to I want to give some background here, because when, once you do set up morality in terms of law versus conscience and of course, the new conscience and morality, um, as it were, gets rid of law, basically. But. But remember, back in the day, um, you know, it, it was law versus conscience, and so law was the the kind of the stern, the stern side, right, right, and conscience was kind of the merciful side. And so, the more that you allowed for conscience to have, be be so called free of law, you know, the more merciful you sort of seemed because law was the stern and and sort of judge. And so, the whole thing became yeah. completely nonsensical. Essentially, this is not a Catholic understanding of law. You know, law is right, God's right. God, law is God's eternal wisdom for human flourishing. Law, there's nothing more merciful than law. Law is God's eternal wisdom for human flourishing, and for for my flourishing, and for your flourishing. And so it's kind of yeah. like um, we got to think about um, law has to do with flourishing, really, because it's rooted in God's wisdom in God's word. And so we've got to remember um, that in giving the law to Israel, um, even though Israel could not obey, um, and of course, often neither can we, but um, the law was a tremendous act of mercy. Yeah. And so it's just kind of like um, if you're on the if you're on the highway and and somebody is driving like 180 miles an hour, you know, you know it would be an act of mercy for the police to pull them over, you know, because right. um, there's, yeah, yeah, for or him, killed- for him, and for. Everybody. And for Before others and for others. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, so, so that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. And I agree. I agree completely because, you know, nobody. I want to be clear. I'm not advocating here, nor nor is anybody you and I know. Right. Uh, advocating here for a sort of strict legalistic finger wagging judgmentalism in full self-righteous pharisaical mode, uh, nor do, <laughs> are we are we singling out a particular class of sinners? I'm, a, I'm merely talking a lot about LGBTQ because Cardinal McElroy does. I mean, it, it's the issue du jour, uh, but there are obviously other classes of, of sinners. But uh, but the, the, the question is precisely whether or not it is merciful and you know, loving to simply sit back and say, well, we're, we're not going to talk about church teaching up front. We're not going to talk about its liberating qualities. And then we're just going to let people sort of decide for themselves, because here's the deal. I get emails now all the time from uh, Catholics who are same sex attracted and who wish to live out the church's teaching in its full mm. significance. They wish to live lives, therefore, uh, the sort of like the homosexual stu- students I used to know, and, and then emails that I get, they want to live lives of sexual continence, sexual chastity and continence. Mm. Uh, and of course, that's a struggle in our in our pornified, hypersexualized culture, but but they they struggle on and do it. But I, now lately, I'm getting all these emails <clears throat> from, from these sorts of Catholics who say, you know, I, I feel like two things. Number one, I feel like I'm being thrown under the bus by, by the church. 
I feel like I'm being abandoned by the church. And I, I feel, you know, I've got all these gay friends of mine who are sexually active, who have a long, for a long time, you know, made fun of me, belittled me, mocked me, calling me a stooge and a sap for living up to the church's teaching. Why deprive myself of this kind of happiness and joy and sexual pleasure? And so on. And he goes, and now, now I have to face the, the, their mockery even more by having the words of a cardinal of the Catholic Church thrown in my face, saying that that essentially what you're so in other words, it, it, is Cardinal McElroy being merciful? Is he is he accompanying those Catholics that are actually trying to live the church's teaching by saying things like this? I mean, he he says that actually the church's teaching has become a kind of burden and causes pain to to sexually active uh, LGBT Catholics and so on. And, and so I, I have a great sympathy for these, these young Catholics who are emailing me and say, I'm, I'm being thrown under the bus. The second thing that they email to say is that what is being ignored here is the extremely deleterious effects morally, spiritually, and otherwise of living within the, 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 the so-called gay subculture within, within our society. Uh, they all say, we wish Cardinal McElroy would take his rose-colored glasses off and actually see what what the, the dark underbelly of this of this lifestyle has within it. And therefore, he, he would realize that he needs to say something about that, too, uh, and not just these words of, of, of generalized acceptance. But anyway, that's not so much a question as a rant, but uh, maybe you have a comment on that. Well, yeah, the, the thing has gotten him almost impossibly complicated um, in terms of how to look. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do because, I mean, right now, um, this, I mean, right now, what, what you're describing um, sounds so, I feel sorry. I, I just, I'm, I'm sort of overwhelmed with, with sadness for these, these poor, poor Catholics. Uh, everybody yeah. can see that. Everybody can see that, um, you know, the normal gay li lifestyle where if, remember, of course, for the homosexual man, you know, if you're so-called married, um, that means you only have about nine different partners, not not the normal 15. Right. Or whatever. This is, um, uh, studies have shown this. and But the whole thing is just kind of ridiculous. I mean, when you, when you think about it. So I, I feel like we got to sort of, get the problem though is that if Catholic morality is going to be done on the basis of sort of law versus conscience and then this conscience set of morality then we're really behind the eight ball and we're trying to describe explain why is Catholic uh, moral teaching um, good you know because it does seem like um, you know to me this framework this framework poisons the whole discussion but but if you're going to look at stuff just from on the ground from common sense you know, common sense tells you that um, that it really is deeply wrong um, in terms of of family and community, um, just right there. But also, I mean, I begin right yeah. there with, with children that are deprived of a father, even though they have a father, um, or children that are deprived of a mother, but being raised by two men or being raised by two women through these, because obviously, in these um, same-sex relationships, that become that become um, same-sex so-called marriage, in these relationships, you have children involved. Um, and at that point, um, you know, then th this is a tremendous uh, evil because what is, what's happening here is that um, children have been, everybody has a father and mother. <laughs> you can't help it. That's biological, <laughs> except for, um, you know, our Lord. 
but uh, um, and Ad, yeah. maybe Adam and Eve or something. Yeah. But look, look. The bottom line is that here we're we're taking children from their, their what they should have, which is a father and mother, and and we are deliberately, deliberately inserting them into a situation where, where they don't have father and mother, and and, and what that does in terms of the confusion for everybody is. It's just an, an act of grave injustice. But but again, the, the problem, though, as I see it, the problem is once moral theology becomes this law versus conscience, then you are you are in a bad way because, um, you know, law yeah. is the stern judge and, and conscience is the one that understands the circumstances and, and knows the intention of, yeah. you know, and so then then the sexual revolution really does sort of, you know, you have you know, you have the stern judge who says, hey, you know, we don't want you to have any pleasure, you know, and, and hey, we, you know, you're, um, you're just bad, you're worse than we are, you know, or something. Yeah, you know, that's on the one side. And then on the other side, you have the merciful people will say, hey, let them have some pleasure, man, you know, and they're, they're good people. Yeah, which, you know, which yeah. of, course is, of course, we all know is, um, and, and once that becomes kind of like the, the argument, you know, then there is no argument. Because their um, Catholic morality has been deeply, deeply um, misunderstood. And what you're going to end up then is just a capitulation of the sexual revolution. But the sexual revolution is not going to have good fruit. And it hasn't had good fruit, you no. know, um, as such. And well, this so is, yeah. it's bitter fruit. This is kind of my, my you know, uh, my deeper point, you know, that uh, which is sort of relates to my throwing gasoline on, on fire comment earlier a bit pejorative i know but the 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 as you correctly frame it in this law versus conscience dynamic the conscience comes across as the merciful and loving thing that that sort of accommodates the individual uh to circumstances if if you if you reduce moral action to that uh then you are in fact sort of tossing people under the bus of the sexual revolution and saying, there you go. Um, you know, it, you know, it's like trying to teach your children to swim by throwing them into a septic tank and then demanding that they not get doo-doo all over them, you know, and, and, and come out clean kids. Um, so obviously that's a ridiculous example, but, but, but you get the point. So that then that leads me to this, uh, this this broader question of uh, where do we go from here? Obviously, <clears throat> obviously, there's a movement afoot, and I'm just going to put this bluntly, to undo, in a sense, Veritate Splendor of Pope John Paul II and to replace it with something else. It's rather vague and ambiguous as to what it is Pope Francis uh, wants to do here. Um, he plays his cards close to the vest, as we now famously know, 10 years in. Um, but it's it's I think one of the things that's a lot very unsettling to a lot of Catholics out there who are orthodox and traditional. Where where is this headed? Um, maybe you have some insight into that. <laughs> well, I don't know, but I, I don't think I don't know if I have any insight because I'm just a, a, a theologian. And so but I do um, think, though, that. Well, theologically, kind of, where is it headed theologically? Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, where is it headed theologically? Um, the, the, Catholic theology works, um, tends to work, um, you know, uh, it, it works through different schools, different schools of Catholic, of Catholic theology. Um, there's sort of a give and take and a push and pull. And and some school will get will, will get its day and then other schools will, will um, get their day, as it were. 
And so what's happening as I see it right now is that the Ranarian school, you know, which right. you know, really was a school of theology, um, is having its day. And so I think that they, my guess is that in um just in terms of practicalities, is that there's gonna be a period of time where the Ranarian school, you know, has a very strong influence on on the magisterium. Now that doesn't mean that I think that um Catholic moral theology is going to be changed because I think that what's going to happen instead would be um, you're going to have set up things like you have the ideal, but then it's it's going to be essentially like a moral a moral um, a version of moral probabilism. You know, you have the ideal right. and it's essentially kind of a laxist version, but but um, but they're still going to they're going to insist that doctrine hasn't been changed because you ha you still have the ideal. And so what I think is going to happen then is that um, the Ranarian school will have its day. And this is kind of normal in Catholic theology, um, that things kind of have a push and pull. And so I think, though, that um, the, the day the Ranarian school has, um, you know, won't be that long. I mean, I can't I can't tell you how many how, many, how long, but but yeah. the problem is that it's just not rooted in Scripture. It's not rooted in um, the church fathers and the depth of the of real thinking about law. In other words, it's so shallow. It's incredibly it, uh, shallow. It, it has no real thing about law, no real thing about virtue, no real thinking about um, you know, Jesus and the Bible. It's it's as shallow as all heck. Yeah, and its bankruptcy will become known the more the bankruptcy of our culture becomes known in these areas as well. Uh yeah. and that's what's got to play out in my view. Uh, but for the sake of my viewers and listeners, you've spoken, I know what it is, but you've spoken about probabilism and there might be a lot of listeners saying, what the heck is probabilism? So maybe you could give a short little definition of of probabilism. Oh, yeah, sometimes people call it casuistic morality or or manualist morality. Yeah. yeah. But it develops after it develops, you know, late 16th century. It's it's fully in display in 17th century. And you, you would think of St. Alphonsus, you know, as a great um, master, you know, where he was, they were getting into so much conflict and he kind of sets up a way of going forward, you know, in a probabilist uh, framework. Um, but it says essentially like you have, you have the laws, you have the norms, but then you have, um, again, it'd be like, it'd be, they, um, San Alphonsus, if you read his great work, he'll be dealing with very concrete problems, such as like, um, you know, can a woman, you know, wear a dress that that shows, um, you know, shows more skin, as it were, how much skin can you show, you know, yeah. and so he'll be dealing with, like, um, okay, here's the norm, here are the laws, here's what the authorities say, you know, here's, here's what conscience can allow, you know, this, that, next thing, you know, so he's got these, um, that's what probabilism is. You know, it's kind of cases of conscience. It's morality yeah. understood as simply cases of conscience. But what it loses is a richer understanding of law. You know, what law really is, which is, yeah. you know, um, that God's eternal wisdom for our flourishing. And it loses um, also the whole the whole sense of virtue and the um, charity and the ju and justice and courage and temperance and prudence. You know, it loses prudence. But it loses a lot of things. Virtue and law are inseparable. So um, if you get rid of law, you know, real, real law, eternal law, you know, natural law, um, then you've gotten rid of virtue. You no longer have virtue either. Yeah. But yeah. but so that's what probabilism is. It sort of develops um, yeah. late 16th century uh, and then 17th, 18th century. You have real big debates and St. Alphonsus comes in and 
but the Dominicans never the Dominicans never swallowed it full because they were <laughs> you know, because they they had they had, a, they had sort of a memory back to Thomas Aquinas and and they kind of thought wait a second this is not the way you know this isn't the way and so yeah absolutely and uh, you know it's it's uh, it's an interesting time to be alive in the church <laughs> that that's that's for sure uh, if anything else it's it's a very very interesting time. You know, I, I, I think that one of the, one of the great things that's come out of this conversation is that uh, it, and, I, and it's what I hope would come out of this conversation is that Cardinal McElroy, like I said before, is not some lone sort of person out there with his own pet theory of things who's decided courageously to tilt at the ecclesial windmill, uh, you know, with, with, with great Don Quixote sort of uh, bravado. Uh, no, he, he's, he's, a, in my opinion, a rather, a rather superficial proponent of a much broader sort of movement in, in Catholic moral theology. And that's kind of what my, what I want my viewers and listeners to understand, because I've gotten some emails from people saying, why are you harping on this so much lately? Uh, and well, I think it's, it's, it's because, you know, we've seen this before, right? This is not new. I had a friend the other day say to me, well, at least Cardinal McElroy has initiated a conversation that we need to have. And I said, wrong. I mean, this is a conversation we've actually had right and 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 these issues have been adjudicated they've been hashed out they've been discussed i mean popes john paul and benedict dealt with them in what in my opinion were definitive ways uh and paul the in in his own way as well uh and, and so there's there's a frustration factor in my mind that you know moral theories that i had hoped had been sort of put in their place and and I know that have being a member of the academic guild, I knew darn well that as you do too, that these mm. that these viewpoints never really went away, that they've been lurking in the background, waiting their day in the sun. Well, their day in the sun has come. Uh, and Cardinal McElroy is just, uh, you know, riding that wave to mix metaphors, riding that wave. Mm -hmm. do, do you have any. Uh, before we uh, we've been on now for about an hour and 15 minutes, do you have any uh, final thoughts for the viewers and listeners? Well, I think what you just said was a good way of summing up because, um, yeah, you do have um, there 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 was a real effort to renew the uh, renew moral theology, get it away from this law of conscience, this very um, weakened understanding of law and yeah, so on this probabilism. Um, but of course, uh, of course, it didn't succeed because it, it um, this renewal effort um, just didn't. The bottom line was that the renewal effort, even though Vatican II pushed it, even though you had people like Pink Hairs and you've you've referenced Veritatis Splendor. Yeah. The, the fact is, the fact is that in European the, um, faculties of moral theology, um, this just was not accepted. You know that they continued to insist upon conscience-centered morality. You know, this time now, really without law, without any law. Yeah, yeah. They continue to insist upon it, and they called it proportionalism or con whatever, it, whatever it was. It it boils down really to just a new version of law versus conscience, a new version of what was there before Vatican II. And so, the the effort to renew Catholic moral theology and to to deepen its roots, I think that that effort is just beginning. You know, and the roots are biblical they're Thomistic, they're patristic 
but there also does good common sense understanding of law and understanding yeah. of the reasonable place of conscience and so on and understanding the virtues and so on. So, so I think there's good hope for the for the future, but it's it may take a while because the renewal really is just beginning. It really did not, um, you know, pink hair has had some impact, especially here in the United States, but um, but really um, in Europe and and many other places, um, and, just yeah. never never took never and took. I, I, I studied under Germain Grise at 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 Mount St. Mary's, and his too okay. was. Uh, you know, an effort at renewing moral theology. I didn't completely mm -hmm. agree with his new natural law theory and so on. Okay. But but there were there were efforts like Pink Airs, like Grise, you know, Finnis, mm -hmm. others. You know, there were there were efforts being made. Um, and even among many, many Thomists, efforts were being made in a sense to okay. read to redeploy Thomistic anthropology, if you want to put it that way, even Thomistic faculty psychology in some ways. Uh, mm -hmm. I've read some great books about Thomas's faculty psychology, which makes it seem as if Thomas is more pertinent now than ever. Uh, so, yeah, may, may the revolution and renewal continue, Matt. And I, I consider you to be uh, a big part of that. Thank you very much uh, for coming on today. This has been very enlightening. I learned a lot today, uh, and I think it's going to be enlightening to a lot of people out there. Uh, and uh, we just need to remain charitable in our discourse. And, and carry on. And people often say, what, what are we, what should we do? Well, just, you know, attend to the sacraments, attend to your family, say your prayers, read good books, watch good movies, whatever, enjoy life. <laughs> this too, <laughs> this too shall pass. Anyway, thanks a lot, Matt. And uh, Thank thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for everybody for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>